welcome to the Arbor Pod, Detective Dendro series. Today's guest is Alan Seward in the case of the suffering Seratina. This podcast is provided by the International Society of Arboriculture. It was a hot August day, the kind of day with so much humidity in the air you see fish swimming by the window. I listened as Mac Macrocarpa half shouted over the din. It was January and I was at the annual Ohio State University short course and Central Environmental Nursery trade show. I'd run into my old friend, Quercus Macrocarpa, a hard-boiled private tree detective from up north. His mother had given him the name Quercus, but where he hailed from on the Lower East Side, Quercus is the type of name that can get you planted too deep, so his friends called him Mac. He went on, undaunted by the crowd of noisy nurserymen at the next table. I was enjoying my air-conditioned office when the phone rang. It was the village manager exercising what he thought to be his expertise in tree matters. Seems a local councilman's cherry tree was looking bad. Mac's biggest peeve in the world is seeing unqualified city workers anointed as city arborists. Some poor schmuck from the service department, Mac ranted, who stayed too long at the coffee machine eating the last donut would be singled out by the service director. With a long bony finger, the service director would point and proclaim, You are the city arborist. With no more education or expertise than any other asphalt pounder, the worker was elevated to a status of importance, able to condemn any tree. I thought Mac was going to burst a blood vessel. Just then, Coded barged in with his bag of swag from the trade show floor. Look at this great stuff they're giving away! Coded shouted, opening his bag. My stomach nodded as my mind raced at the thought of what my protege was about to produce. Dehydrated water, he proclaimed triumphantly as he withdrew a small bag of white powder. The salesman said you mix this stuff with water and pour it on the tree once a week and the tree will be drought-proof. Mac's eyes rolled back in his head. Coded, if you pour water on a tree once a week without that stuff, it'll still be drought-proof. But Coda was too busy reading the bright, glossy advertising to hear a word Mac said. I headed uptown to the scene of the crime, Mac continued, leaving Coded in his fantasy world. By the time I got there, the village manager was already talking to the councilman about his tree. He'd identified the tree properly. It was black cherry, Prunus serotina, to be exact, and a big one, at least 48 inches DBH. The manager was busy giving the councilman his diagnosis, which I had to admit was more plausible than his last notable effort. This is the guy, Mac continued with a grin, who diagnosed Erwinia amylivora, fire blight in the vernacular, on Scott's pine, a.k.a. Pinus sylvestris. His diagnosis had gotten him a big write-up by the local garden writer in her Sunday column. Coded's head sprang up from a flyer extolling the virtues of a photon applicator. I hear fire blight is a big problem up in your area. Good thing he ID'd the problem. Yeah, Mac replied with an exasperated look on his face. Fire blight is as deadly to pines as chicken pox is to chickens. I could see by the dumbfounded look on Coded's face that Mac's tongue-in-cheek statement hadn't quite sunk home. But chickens don't get chicken pox. People get chicken pox, Coded corrected. And pines don't get fire blight, retorted Mac, snapping shut the trap he had set for my gullible companion. Only members of the Rosaceae family, roses, crab apples, pears, for example, are susceptible to fire blight. And of course, Scott's Pine is in the Pinacea family and no more susceptible to fire blight than you or I. Coded looked quickly at his hands. Apparently, the orange flaky bark on the trunk and large branches, an identifying characteristic of Scott's Pine, looked like fire to our would-be diagnostician. So we put two and two together and came up with 47, said Mac. He smiled, shook his head, and took a long pull from his beer. Anyway, so back to the cherry. 
The village manager went on to explain how caterpillars could defoliate a tree and make it look bad. At first glance, I could see how he came up to that conclusion, but then his diagnosis folded like a cheap suit when he mentioned gypsy moth, Lamantria dispar. Gypsy moth, I interjected, finally getting a word in. Cherry trees are only an intermediate food source for the gypsy moth. If the cherry was being hit hard, the rest of the neighborhood would be all chewed up as well. That's what I thought, said Mac, almost coming out of his chair. His eyes sparkled at the first sign of comprehension from another diagnostician. But the crab apple, which is malice, in the neighbor's yard and the councilman's Quercus alba in his own backyard were fine, fully leafed out and doing great, and those trees are like surf and turf to a gypsy moth. What about cherry scallop shell moth, Hydria prunavirata? I asked, wrecking my brain for the details from a news clip I'd read a while ago. I heard there was an outbreak in southern Ohio a few years back. No, not scallop shell moth, Mac replied, leaning forward over the table, his excitement growing. And not fall webworm, Hyphantria cunia, or eastern tent caterpillar, Malascoma americanum, although they do relish cherry. There was not a web or a nest to be seen, and all those three shady characters all spin webs to protect themselves either while eating or when they're resting. Then what about forest tent caterpillar, Malacosoma distria? I asked. They don't spin webs. Right, the forest tent doesn't spin webs, Mac agreed. But they are active April through June, and the phone calls for help discontinued by the 4th of July. This was in August. No, it wasn't a caterpillar gang we were after, Mac said as he looked around for the waitress. The leaves were turning brown and falling, but none were chewed. The tree looked bad, dead branches and thinning canopy. It had been roughed up pretty badly, but the culprit hadn't been fingered. Mac ordered us another round, and I started looking like the diagnostician I was. about the tree, I asked Mac. You told me the canopy was thin and that the tree had dead branches in the crown. Where were the dead branches? Up high in the very top or low in the crown? High in the canopy and on the south side, Mac replied with a grin, now playing the straight man. High and in the sun, I mused. We also have brown leaves in the heat of the summer. Were these fall color brown or dried out brown? Dried out brown. What else do you know, I pressed, grasping for more clues. There was a heavy fruit set, Mac answered, heavier than normal. The branches hung down under the weight, and the driveway was covered with stains so bad the storm sewers were going to run purple the next time it rained. Heavy fruit set, thin crown, top dieback, and brown dry leaves during hot, dry weather. This isn't an insect or a disease. I paused for effect. It's a root problem. Bingo, Max shouted as the table full of startled nursery men looked up from their drinks. It didn't take me long to answer the question once I knew where to look, or should I say dig. Mac looked at Coda for some sign of comprehension, but Coda was engrossed in a flyer extolling the virtues of hydrogen hydroxide. I could read the clues like a cheap dime store novel, Mac said, returning to his story. There was a brand new sidewalk panel shining in the hot August sun, and right in line with the new panel was a strip of light green grass running to the corner of the house. Light green and brand new. 
Oh yeah, and there was a new plastic surface drain in the new grass. Mac leaned back and threw his arm over the back of his chair. The new grass, the new sidewalk panel, it was a two-bit cover-up of a hack job by the local excavator. I didn't need a protractor to connect the dots from the new foundation drain at the corner of the house to the street. Now this tree got its ticket punched for the crane ride to Slab City, and nothing I was going to say would change that. The crown was in denial and pushing fruit like nobody's business, but the memo was on the way up. The dance was over for this cherry. It was an open and shut case, so I gave the bad news to the village manager and headed to the local watering hole for a tall, cool one. Did the homeowner buy your explanation? I asked. I had known Mac long enough to know this was not the end of the story. Apparently, my opinion wasn't good enough for the councilman, Mac growled. He called in a hired gun from the west side. I had hit another of Mac's raw nerves. I put in a few calls and found out when the outside talent was coming in, he explained. By coincidence, I happened to be in the area that morning. It didn't take him long to find the buried evidence that I already knew was there. A large chunk of root that was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. It got in the way of this ruthless excavator and was buried in a shallow grave. A dark look crossed Mac's face. I could see he was reliving those gruesome moments. The tortured stubs of amputated roots hung out like hindquarters at the meat processing plant. It took a long moment for Mac to snap out of his trance. That thousand-mile stare you see on soldiers or people who have witnessed carnage beyond words. Mac finished his beer. They had a funeral. The tree is gone, and as usual, no one takes on the powerful excavating mob. He stood up and put his hat low on his head. Somehow, we need to convince people that the $10,000 tree is worth more than the $175 sewer line or the $100 sidewalk panel. You'd think that'd be easier than it is. Max strolled away, leaving Coded and I pondering a complex question. What was the real diagnosis here? Was the issue the trenching of the root system, or was it, as Mac pointed out, the low value given to trees? Had the trenching been just another symptom of the real problem? I recalled an article I read way back in the December 1999 issue of Arborist News, Seward's Theorems of Urban Forestry. I remember the author's last theorem well. The most destructive pests in the urban forest are humans. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ArborPod Detective Denjo series. You can earn CEUs for this podcast. Just use the code DD7372 to complete the quiz. Stay tuned for the next ones. This podcast is provided by the International Society of Arbor Culture.